In the Graduate Fellowship magazine of the IBF of June 1966, an article appeared entitled The Open Mind by Professor D.M. Mackey, a Vice President of the IBF of Keele University. Though this lacks many of the detailed outworkings of this approach, it is clear in the main thrust of its argument. It is that God, who is dead straight, in whom there is no double think, demands that we be open, obediently open, to his truth wherever it is found, my italics. These last words are crucially important ones, for they do not refer exclusively or even supremely to the Holy Scriptures, but they amount to a claim that God's truth can be found outside the Bible. He says on this very point, This is crucial because he, the Christian, wants nothing more than than to receive God's correction on any point where he thinks amiss. He must ensure, as best he can, that he erects no barriers to such correction in any quarter, however unthinkable it may be to him to expect it from there. This amounts to having a closed mind to the finality, sufficiency, infallibility, and authority of the scriptures on all that they say, and they speak of everything, and an open mind to what men of secular scholarship have to say. To adopt this approach characterized by an open mind to God's truth wherever it is found would require that one be open to the influence of what would, on inadequate grounds, demand that devastating shifts of position be made which the terms of our doctrine would exclude as being untenable and unnecessary. Let it not be thought that Scripture's position can only be maintained in the obscurity of an evangelical corner. We are not campaigning for a closed-mind approach. On the contrary, we are calling for a thoroughgoing mind which will be evidenced in a fearless willingness to draw all the conclusions of the doctrinal statements we make. Our claim is that this is not being done by contemporary evangelicals and that at this point there is a basic flaw and contradiction in their position. Let proven facts and deeper understanding modify doctrinal statements, but let not an uncritical acceptance of shifting theories do so. Let God be true and every man a liar contradictory treated as a as complementary. Lest it should be thought that we are not aware of the thesis under which these originally diverse outlooks are blended, we shall now turn to examine the claim that what has usually been regarded as contradictory, e.g. science and Genesis 1, are in reality complementary. Dr. D.C. Spanner, in his Falcon book entitled Creation and Evolution outlines this approach in a popular, plausible form. The more popularized a view becomes, the more dangerous its influence. All our thinking is dimensional, he maintains, and the world and life are full of complexities. It therefore follows that there is always more than one valid viewpoint. Examples follows and follow, and one will suffice. When we stand in the garden and look at our house, all we can see is the rear elevation. Only two of its three linear dimensions enter the picture. If we wish to see the other dimension, we must trespass on our neighbor's property. Has this any parabolic significance? To get the end-on view, 
and we find that as the new dimension of depth comes up, comes into sight, so one of the previous ones, that of length, passes out. How true of all human thinking this is, and how widespread an attitude to scripture it is. For example, how often it is said that the Bible is not a textbook for science, history, or geography. But this misses the whole point, which is that scripture is not merely the human dimension or anything it says. It is a divine dimension that not only does not need to be, but cannot be correctively supplemented. True, scripture is not a formal textbook on every academic discipline, making scholarly inquiry and activity unnecessary, but it is not merely a handbook on faith and morals either. It contains what God wishes us to know and believe about all that is within its pages, such as creation and the history of mankind, and lays down the principles within which any study must be conducted. These principles cannot be disproved, and the framework used can never be dispensed with. To depart from this mooring is to depart from the Word of God and to sail on the sea of free thought. The New Evangelicism The above note has been sounded in the United States more loudly and plainly. There is, for example, a phrase which was coined at Fuller Theological Seminary in 1948, and it is the new evangelicalism. H. G. Okenga, in a press dispatch from Boston, December 1957, is on record as saying, the evangelical believes that Christianity is intellectually defensible and that the Christian cannot be obscurist in scientific questions pertaining to the creation the age of man, the universality of the flood, and other debatable biblical questions. The new evangelicalism is willing to face the intellectual problems and meet them in the framework of modern learning. Against this, Harold Linzel writes in the Bulletin of Evangelical Theological Society, winter 1965, predicting in outline the consequences of this attitude. Today, there are those who have been numbered among the new evangelicals, some of whom possess the keenest minds and have acquired the apparati of scholarship, who are broken or in process of breaking with the doctrine of an inerrant scripture. One can predict with almost fatalistic certainty that in course of time, the moderating evangelicals who deny inerrancy will adopt new positions such as belief in the multiple authorship of Isaiah, the late date of Daniel, the idea that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are myth and saga. And then these critical conclusions will spill over into the New Testament, and when the same principles of higher criticism are applied, this can only lead to a scrapping of the facility of the facticity of the resurrection, etc. This has ever been the historical movement, and there is nothing to suppose that such a re- repetitive process will not follow. Is this a statement of an alarmist? No. Concessions are being made on these issues. In the New Bible Dictionary, IVF, N.N. N. Ritterbos writes on Isaiah, page 573, 
In the opinion of the present writer, it is acceptable to hold that chapters 40 to 66 contain an Isianic core upon which the prophet's disciples, men who felt themselves closely bound to him, later worked in the spirit of the original authors. It is, however, impossible for us to assess how much belongs to the Isianic core and how much to later elaborations. So we are at least two removes from Isaiah, the son of Amos. Again, C.A. Hubbard, in his article on the Pentateuch, page 963, writes, As far as the Genesis stories are concerned, Moses may or may not have been the one who compiled them from their written and oral forms. In Israel and the Nations, Professor F.F. Bruce refers to Deutero-Isaiah with approval and does not include Daniel in the section relating to the Babylonian exile. The inference is that Daniel is a second century work and this view is demanded demanded by a veiled reference on page 123 to the Ptolemies being described in chapter 11. Two books from the Evangelical Anglican Wing, published by Hodder and Stoughton, manifest this. They are A Christian's Guide to the Old Testament by J.B. Taylor, and the meaning of salvation by Michael Green. In A Children's Christian's Guide to the Old Testament by J.B. Taylor, Genesis 1-11 to is passed over in silence, and the significance of the Abrahamic covenant, the ritual and history for the Christian is not discussed. This is a direct result of the author's bondage to the modern historical approach to the Old Testament. There is a defective view of the canon and inspiration when the books of Esther and Song of Songs are discussed. The older new covenants are divorced and the RSV alone is used. Yet this book was reviewed in The Life of Faith by H. L. Ellison as being elementary but interesting. No criticism was offered except that it was a little brief. The Meaning of Salvation by Michael Green shows the same defect. There is no mention of creation or fall, and in his two chapters on the Old Testament, his concessions to modern scholarship are alarmingly evident. The Vigitus is a priestly book written at the time of Deutero-Isaiah, some six centuries after Moses. Uh, Daniel is pseudominous and comes from the mid-century and not the sixth century B.C. Here is a complete sellout, not only regarding the scriptures, but their source, namely, propositional revelation. Green says, page 12, God's self-disclosure is seen less in biblical statements than in biblical history. While it cannot be denied that God's acts in rescuing his people are even more important than the interpretation given to these acts in the pages of the Bible. The crowning statement appears in the Tyndale Commentary Genesis by Derek Kidner, where, with regard to the Mosaic authorship of Genesis, the ascription of the whole law to Moses by the Lord is not regarded as conclusive, and the section on the authorship is closed by a vague attempt to evade the factual authority of the words of the Lord by appealing in a semi 
spiritualizing matter to the authority of his person. The reference is to be found on page 24 and reads, Whether we are tempted in our Pentateuchal studies to erect many tabernacles or few for Moses or a multitude, the answer of heaven is, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Two alarming consequences follow. First, evangelical scholars are increasingly maintaining what scripture teaches on the grounds that scholars are coming to accept it. For example, Michael Green in the above work writes in a footnote that John could have spoken of Jesus as the Lamb of God is no longer inconceivable. Brownlee shows, page 94, and again, if we are to believe St. Luke, and scholars are increasingly recognizing the primitive nature of the birth story. Secondly, in Christian View of Science and Scripture by Bernard Ram, we read page 29. If the differences between the sciences and the Bible were to grow to a very large number and were of the most serious nature, it would be questionable if we could retain faith in the scripture. True, we may believe some of the Bible in spite of science, but certainly the situation would change if we believed all of the Bible in spite of science. That such a possibility could be entertained by an evangelical, evangelical believer in scripture is something to be wondered at, but that science, or rather scientific theory, science falsely so-called, should be given the position of dictating to scripture is unforgivable. Nature and Scripture as Equivalent Revelation J.C. Whitcomb lays his finger on the source error. He says in the original origins of the solar system, This theory maintains that God has given to man two revelations of truth, each of which is fully authoritative in its own realm, the revelation of God in Scripture and the revelation of God in nature. The theologian is God-appointed interpreter of scripture, and the scientist is God-appointed interpreter of nature, and each has specialized tools for determining the true meaning of the particular book of Revelation which he is called upon to study. In a Tyndale monograph entitled, Genesis 1 Reconsidered, D.F. Payne, head of Department of Semitic Studies, Queens, Belfast, said, while stating that God was the maker of the universe and all it contains, Genesis 1 shows a total disinterestedness in mechanics of creation. It certainly gives an answer to the question, who? It does not remotely answer the question, how? The divine fiat is, strictly speaking, not so much the mode as the instrument or agent of the creator. As soon as this fact is understood and assimilated, one realizes that it is both proper and sensible to resort to scientists if one wishes to learn anything of the mechanics of creation. But this is false, for to speak of the how as distinct from the who involves us in a concept of process. Creation is act, not process. Hebrews 11.3 A method of creation means that creation is reduced to a providential process. Creation means God's act of producing the truly new, new as to matter, new as to form, or new as to both form and matter. 
God used dust to create Adam's body, but the creative act did not involve process. It was an act of the divine will, a fiat. Acts and processes are not complementary as Mac A and Christianity in a mechanistic universe and Spanner in creation and evolution maintain. They are irreconcilably, irreconcilably contradictory. Spanner seems to be blissfully persuaded that evolutionary theory may be looked upon as being the origin of the world and possibly even of man and biblical faith be undamaged as a result. One damaging result is that Spanner can only call Genesis 1 an incomparable fragment and a prophetic message. The introduction to Kidner's commentary Genesis exhibits the same unawareness namely that to believe in evolution, even of man, and the scripture's infallibility and authority is utterly impossible. Theistic evolution or progressive creation are really children of the evangelical embarrassment when faced with the onslaught of natural evolution. To hold to Genesis as sober history and evolution as a fact means that we must make room for the vast periods of geologic time in a six-day scheme. This is tantamount to building a halfway house which lacks the solid bedrock of scripture and the shifting sand of consistent scientific theory for a foundation. We ought not to be beguiled into confusing or obliterating the fact that this distinction between creation and evolution is a consequence of the unbridgeable chasm between pure theism and pure chance. Theistic evolution is God interfering in a chain of chance reactions at as many points as modern evangelical theology may determine to be necessary in order to save its academic faith, e.g. the actual beginning of inanimate creation and the origin of rational and moral life. These are not biblical exceptions, but from the viewpoint of the consistent evolutionist unwelcome intrusions and pathetic emphasis, and from the viewpoint of the consistent biblicist, the result of a needless and unwarrantable concession to the thought of man and defection from the word of God. In this relation, the review of Morris and Whitcomb's The Genesis Flood, which appeared in the International Reform Bulletin by Van Fleert, the professor of geology at the Free University of Amsterdam, is most revealing. He regards any attempt to revive biblical catastrophism as a good joke. He closes a lengthy, rather pedantic tirade by saying, there is a revelation, but of a different kind than that of the Bible, in the development of this created world, also in the results of human scientific and technical possibilities during the last centuries. It cannot be denied, and should not be denied, that as a result of this development, our world picture has obtained huge dimensions, both in time and space, and has become entirely different from those of the authors of the Bible. But this is the world God has wanted us to live in, us and our children. Orthodoxy is viewed as restrictive. The second trend which must be noted, which in the light of the foregoing cannot but appear, is that the old terms in which the doctrine of Scripture used to be confessed 
have become somewhat cramping for those who engage in the kind of scholarly activity described. To countenance what scripture precludes and upholds scripture as authoritative, and at the same time is a dilemma which will not go away and which cannot long continue. And in order to maintain these new insights, the inhibiting statements of Scripture's doctrine have to be reinterpreted. Paul King Jewett in Christian Life, 15, March 1956, wrote, Our all-important Protestant conviction of biblical authority needs revitalizing. He listed Scripture translation, biblical authority, and the doctrine of scriptural inspiration as needing fresh life, and this investigation, he felt, would come from helpful biblical criticism. In Christianity Today, November 10, 1961, a survey of beliefs of American clergymen showed 12% liberal, 14% neo-orthodox, 35% fundamentalist, 39% conservative. The interesting feature for our purposes is the division between the last two groups. The report admitted that what separated them was the doctrine of total or complete inerrancy to which the fundamentalist subscribes. E.J. Carnell, in his book, The Cause for Orthodox Theology, confesses, The problem of inspiration is still a problem and berates intellectual stagnation among evangelicals. Dr. Carl Henry in Christianity Today, April 26, 1963, is unambiguous in his article upholding verbal inspiration, and yet the two volumes of essays by contemporary evangelical scholars entitled Revelation and the Bible and Jesus of Nazareth, Savior and Lord, to which he writes the opening essay, contain two rather disturbing facts. In the first, E.F. Harrison concludes his essay on the phenomena of scripture, page 250, by saying, Unquestionably, the Bible teaches its own inspiration. It is the book of God. It does not require us to hold inerrancy, though this is a natural corollary of full inspiration. The phenomena which present difficulties are not to be dismissed or underrated. They have driven many sincere believers in the trustworthiness of the Bible as a spiritual guide to hold a modified position on the non-revelation material. Every man must be persuaded in his own mind. Then in the latter volume, Paul Orpheus is numbered among evangelical scholars. He wrote a book on the theology of Martin Luther and took exception to Luther's statement. Because God says it, I will believe that it is so. I will follow the word and regard my own thoughts and ideas as vain. To which Alpheus, the evangelical, replies, This faith involves the compulsion to believe and to submit humbly to the written word as such, according to this understanding of faith. God commands us to believe the entire content of scripture as though he himself were the author and he insists that we abandon reason and the questions and doubts it poses for us. Infallibility and inerrancy reinterpreted. 
It was announced some two years ago that the evangelical scholars were meeting in the USA to discuss the doctrine of the scriptures. No report has been given, but in the recent issue of International Reform Bulletin devoted to scripture, there appears a paper by Professor H. N. Ritterboth given in Boston in June 1966. In this article entitled, An Attempt at the theological definition of inerrancy, infallibility, and authority, Professor Ritterbos suggests that we can dispense with the former epithet inerrancy because it could lead to an in- inadequate approach to the scripture insofar as it concerns itself more with the details than with the whole of scripture and its purpose. Inerrancy is surely included in infallibility, he argues. But though, for Professor Ritterbos, the scripture can be identified with the word of God, having unconditional authority and being the infallible foundation for faith, it is only this because of its soteriological purpose. One is therefore left suspicious as to whether this is the old doctrine of limited inspiration countered by B.B. Warfield, that the scriptures are not infallible on everything they say, but only when they teach what is integral to the saving knowledge of God. This suspicion is reinforced by the following statement of Ritterboth. One cannot say everything of the scripture which one can say of the word of God, and one cannot identify the apostles and prophets with the Holy Spirit. The word of God endures forever, is perfect. But the scripture is not eternal and is also not perfect. Inspiration consists in this, that God speaks his word through men, that he makes their words the instrument of his word. As such, the human word stands in the service of God and participates in the authority and infallibility of the word of God. But it remains a human and therefore also an inadequate instrument. If one denies this, or if one ignores it in fact, then he must arrive at the docetic view of the scripture, and he takes away the peculiar nature of the scripture, as also of the authority and infallibility of the scripture as word of God. As regards the relation between inspiration and infallibility, authority, Professor Ritterboth says it is difficult, if not impossible, to determine because he cannot make distinctions between parts of the scripture on the grounds of inspiration and non-inspiration, nor can we give a blanket approval to all the content of scripture as being divinely revealed. This, says Ritterbos, would involve us in accepting as correct and exact all that the scripture contains of pronouncements, statements, and data. His conclusion is, that if there is more light cast upon the scripture than was formerly the case, also by the investigations of historical science, then the church must rejoice in this, though it may compel her at the time to a readiness to consider and redefine her theological definitions in regard to scripture. A more popular expression of this thesis is found in a Falcon book by Michael Green entitled the authority of scripture. On this very matter of authority, he writes, it is to the scriptures 
inspired by the Spirit, that Christians have habitually turned as the nearest to an ultimate authority that mortal men can find. Is this what the Bible claims for itself? No. However, in the light of the Archbishop of Canterbury's being quoted with approval on this matter, perhaps we ought to be thankful for the retention of some supremacy for Scripture, even if it is only nearest to the ultimate. However, he goes further and sti- further still and says, We must distinguish between the Bible itself and the teaching of the Bible. It is the latter which is the word of God that we must obey. This is a pernicious distinction, for it enables a person to sit loose to the formal data of Scripture and yet to maintain its principles and message. Authority and inerrancy are then restricted to the latter. This attitude is also seen at work in an article on Genesis 1, Science, History, Theology, by Dr. J.A. Thompson of Melbourne University, which appeared in the TSF Bulletin, Spring 1968. Whatever view is adopted in regard to the literary nature of the chapters, the definition of the central affirmation should be approximately the same. Michael Green goes on, The central issue in Genesis 1-3 is one of authority, not of interpretation. Our interpretation will differ according to whether we regard it as straightforward history or as a poetic story, couched in non-scientific language and designed to teach abiding spiritual truth. But we bow to the authority of its message if we stay true to the revelation it contains. This is the teaching of the passage, and it is clearly quite a different matter from the literary genre employed. Page 29. Evasion of Plain Historical Statements This begs the whole question, for it is based on a false distinction between word revealed and word inscripturated, and presumes on the right to view Genesis 1-3 as history or poetry. Does Genesis 1-3 leave this open to us, or does it present itself as sober history, and is not this presentation as authoritative as the message these chapters declare? If it claims to be history, then as the word of God written, it must be believed as history. As we read page 30, that heaven is described in picture language and is not to be interpreted literally. This is deceptive. It is to be interpreted literally, that is, with regard to the symbols used, but not literalistically. See Fundamentalism and the Word of God, page 102F. On this basis, Green writes, Or take the story of Jonah. It may be meant a straightforward history, particularly as we know of a Jonah from 2 Kings 14.25, and as Jesus referred to his sojourn in the belly of the great fish, Matthew 12.40. On the other hand, we may be meant to read it as a parable to teach us the importance of missionary work. Admittedly, it does not say that it is a parable, but then neither does the story of the prodigal son. And I do not suppose that anybody feels 
that the importance of the teaching of that story depends on whether there was such a son or not. The important thing is not whether we regard the stories of Jonah and the prodigal as historical or parabolical, on that there may be legitimate differences of opinion, but on whether we bow to the divine authoritativeness of the message they enshrine. He closes this section by saying, Literalism, then, is no essential part of any orthodox doctrine of scripture. There is only one answer to this, and it is that attempted evasion of the plain historical statements of the Old Testament and the Lord himself is expressly forbidden by the orthodox doctrine of scripture. Green comes to the crucial issue which is involved when he says the inerrancy, inerrancy of all minute in the Bible account has never been the main concern of upholders of the supreme authority of the scriptures. Here James Orr is pitted against a stronger, more consistent line of B.B. Warfield, but it is completely ignored that it was the former who commissioned the latter to write the article on inspiration in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. Orr himself wrote in Revelation and Inspiration, page 216, that the Bible, impartially interpreted and judged, is free from demonstrable error in its statements and harmonious in its teachings to a degree that of itself creates an irresistible impression of a supernatural factor in its origin. Rationalizing Fundamentalism It should be said in conclusion that what we have been grieved to note has not passed unnoticed by modern theologians who represent a non-evangelical viewpoint. In old and new in interpretation, SCM Press, Professor James Barr of Princeton University writes, As soon as fundamentalists come into contact with a more sophisticated majority culture <coughs> and are surrounded by people aware of modern science and history, they become anxious for some principle which will sustain them supporting them in their traditional and supposedly Bible-centered view of all truth. The idea of revelation through history may assist them at just this point. It affects may, I do not say must be, to rationalize fundamentalism or many of the attitudes which go with it. This is a judicious comment and one which is borne out by the evidence submitted. What Barr tentatively suggests to modern evangelicals has in fact already become the principle on which they operate. Revelation through history amounts to a concentration on human encounter with God and a recording of that encounter in human terms. And the result of the application of this principle has already been to rationalize fundamentalism in our day. What does the future hold? To say the least, it cannot be visualized without some foreboding on account of the dangerous trends manifest in the evidence we have submitted. W.B. Grover writes of the last century in Evangelical Nonconformist and Higher Criticism, page 139, and with particular reference to Alexander McLaren. The example of so great a preacher who was tolerant of higher criticism 
and who even entertained the possibility that the story of the fall was mythical could not have been without effect. It was not without effect, and the whirlwind that is being reaped following the sowing of the wind has not yet blown itself out. Indeed, there are those who are persuaded that all evangelicals will be blown away if they merely try to ride out the storm in their traditional harbors. Dr. Carl Henry writes in Jesus of Nazareth, Savior and Lord, If evangelical Protestants do not overcome their preoccupation with negative criticism of contemporary theological deviations at the expense of the construction of preferable alternatives to these, they will not be much of a doctrinal force in the decade ahead. With due respect, we must dissent sharply because we believe and have submitted that it is as a result of an attempt to construct a preferable alternative that we have lost not only doctrinal force, but are in danger of even losing a doctrinal position. Without wanting in the slightest to shackle further exegetical study of the Bible and continued attempts to systematize its teaching, we would nevertheless maintain that our only hope in the decade ahead is to maintain the position from which these contemporary theological deviations have departed and to do this not as a preferable alternative but as the sine qua non of saving biblical truth. And that is the end of that inspiration of the scriptures and the doctrine of scriptures today. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. 
It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.